Good morning. I, I got to have better than that. I need a little bit of help. Good morning. Oh, there we go. That's good. Man, first service. Good morning back at me. That's good. I was a little nervous. He's got stories on me that could end my ministry right here and now. So thank you for exercising restraint. I appreciate that very, very much. Um, you have had an incredible uh, lineup, and I looked at it, and I got nervous. I'm like, wow, those are great people. I just want one of them to come back, and I get to sit and hear them. But I'm here, so now we got to deal with that. We have to wrangle that this morning. I'm privileged to be here. My heart's already here. I've known your pastor for a little over 20 years, and uh, we actually first met in Russia and Belarus, and we're on a missions trip together, and um, have, have known each other ever since then, and what a great leader and family, and you guys are just privileged to have great leadership here. Then this is my old stomping grounds. I grew up about three miles down the road. Everybody know where the movie theater's at, and then Mona Lake right behind there. I grew up turtle hunting and snake, snake hunting and all that kind of stuff back there. That's my old stomping grounds. And, um, and then, of course, Rachel Nellis. You have my wonderful friend. She's like my daughter. She's like my adopted daughter. You have my wonderful friend Rachel Nellis here, so so be good to her. I know she'll be good to you. She's wonderful, wonderful. Nobody loves Jesus and kids more than, than Rachel, so uh, my absolute privilege to be here and share with you this morning. I talked to Pastor Ben. He said, share what's ever on your heart, and if you know me at all, you'll know there are two things that are always on my heart. One is Jesus, and the other is my wife. And uh, so I said, well, I can't preach about my wife. She's not in the Bible per se. She's, 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 referenced in certain passages, but she's not there as a character. So I said, is it okay if I speak about marriage? And he and I had already actually talked because I did some things on marriage over at Grand Rapids first, and we dialogued after that, and he said, is it okay if I use a little bit of that? And I said, that's fine, but when I'm coming, I'm still going to preach on it. Is that okay? And he said, that would be great. So if you hear little echoes of that, that is not a problem at all this morning, because I believe that marriage is the single most significant thing that we do Uh, in terms of architecturally to build the kingdom of God on planet earth. Now, I know that we have uh, all kinds of experiences that we come, and I'm aware that we're in a room like this. We have people that are going, well, I'm not married. I'm not interested in being married. I have been married and feel damaged by that marriage. But the fact is, no matter what has happened to us, marriage still serves as an archetype for all of the relationships that exist on planet Earth. So what we talk about this morning, whether marriage is in our past, in our future, we think no way, never again, not going to touch it with a 10-foot pole, All of the things that we talk about still function architecturally for the rest of the relationships in our life and still have great meaning and great value to us. But the problem when we think about marriage is that if we're going to be honest, that we are in a fundamental crisis when it comes to this issue. And I think that that implies that we have something structurally, something architecturally wrong with us at the level of us as individuals in our relationship with Jesus, that marriages are not ultimately composed of two broken people coming together and making each other whole, but they're composed of two whole people coming together and blessing each other and functioning out of that wholeness that they already possess. And there is an inviolable relationship between us and our marriage and our Christianity. I sit with people all the time and they say, you know, I really, really love Jesus and I love uh, the church and I love the gospel, but my husband or my wife, I just struggle with. And I think this is fascinating because biblically, those two things are absolutely inseparable. I love D.L. Moody. He basically said this, that your marriage is a litmus test for your relationship with Christ. He said, if I want to know who you really are, if I want to know what your relationship with Jesus is really like, I don't go ask your pastor. How many know anybody can put on a performance for 90 minutes on a Sunday morning, myself included? I don't go to the pastor. I don't go to the people who have that kind of, I go to your spouse and I say, tell me, what are they really, really, really like? Marriage is the fullest expression of the gospel that exists on planet earth. How many, nobody can wound you like your spouse? You expose your most private self. You expose your deepest emotions, everything about you. Your spouse knows about all the little moles, both moral and physical, that exist in your life. And they have the ability to wound you in a way that nobody else does. I experienced this, uh, and everybody probably does who's in a marriage relationship. Somebody who you work with, somebody who you're around, could say something about you. It would just roll right off you. But if your spouse says it about you, it's just like twist the knife, right? because they have access to our hearts in a way that nobody else does. And marriage is the nursery of the future church. The fact is, is that Pastor Ben and Pastor Pete, they can preach till the cows come home, but every single young person who's raised in this church, the question they will ask when they go home is, does what was preached on Sunday work in real life? And they will answer that question by what happens 
and our families? They'll answer that question. That will be the apologetic for what we say on Sunday morning in the context of the church. We have to get this right. And you have probably heard the stats, depending on who you count and what articles you read, somewhere between 38 and 50% of people, uh, those are couples who attend church regularly and put a high priority on their relationship with Jesus Christ, those who profess to, and in divorce. Whoa, 60% of males, 40% of females will have an affair at some point in their married life. 85% of marriages will be impacted by infidelity at some point. Whoa. Whoa. And the problem sometimes for us as a church, we go, whoa, we have a problem. People are getting divorced and people are committing adultery. People are struggling. But the, f- the problem is that people do not commit adultery and divorce from healthy, wonderful, robust, very good marriages. And I would just like to be here to advocate this morning for God's system of marriage, which he says is very good. Very good. So we have to reckon with God when we talk about marriage and we think, well, my marriage is struggling, my marriage is difficult, my marriage is hard. We have to come back to Scripture and let Scripture orient us rather than our own personal experience. Amen? So the question then is, what is the problem? Why are so few marriages genuinely very good? That's the fundamental question. Not why are people committing adultery. Not why are people unfaithful to their marriage. People don't wake up one morning to a very good marriage and say, ah, you know what, this has been a great run, but I think I'm done. People don't do that. People don't wake up one morning and say, I am so in love with my spouse. My spouse is just amazing. I can't believe that I get to be on this incredible journey with another human being, and then the next morning just bail. We don't do that as human beings. Something goes wrong long, long, long before that. And I would like to propose to you that it is this, that we have fundamentally misunderstood the meaning of marriage that we have fundamentally misunderstood what marriage is for. And I want to give you an example. How many believe, they'll just agree with me, Scripture says marriage is very good. It is very good. The question is, is, what is it very good at? That is the question. So let me give you an example. Let's say that I'm sitting in my office, and uh, one of my coworkers come to me, and they say, JP, you have such wonderful white teeth. And and I just am struggling. I have this plaque and this, this yellow gunk and funk that I just cannot get off of my teeth. Can you help me? Is there anything that you can do? I'm embarrassed every time I go to the dentist. I'm embarrassed to smile. I, I, just, I, just, I have to have a solution. Can you help me? And I look at them and I say to them, I have a product that is very good. It will help you. If you use this product, you will never have yellow teeth again. In fact, you will not need to even brush your teeth. You will not need to floss. And when you go to your dentist, he will say, I have never seen anything like this. And I hand it to him, and expecting to receive the world's most amazing toothbrush, I hand him a pair of pliers. You see, the problem is he misunderstood what I was trying to communicate. This is very good at what I said it was going to do, but we're confused about the methodology of what that very goodness is about. And when it comes to marriage, we have sort of asked marriage to do something that it's actually not very good at. And here's what we've asked marriage to do, to make me happy. But that is not the very goodness that God actually describes in the Garden of Eden. The marriage, the meaning of marriage, the very goodness of marriage is actually something very, very fundamentally different than that. And so that's what I would like to explore with you this morning if we can. So how do we have a very good marriage? Well, to have a very good marriage, I think we need to recapture this biblical meaning and purpose of marriage. And we need to see that the very goodness of marriage is not based on whether it fulfills my needs, but whether my marriage fulfills God's call. So what is the meaning of marriage? I want to give you three qualities this morning of a very good marriage. And again, remember, marriage is an archetypal relationship. This is the same thing that will make any relationship valuable and good and healthy, God-honoring, and something that's sacred. The first is this. A very good marriage fulfills its missionary purpose. What do you mean by that? Why don't you read with me Ephesians chapter 5, 25 through 27. And if you're turning there or using your phone, we'll pray and ask God to bless our time in the word. Father, we ask you this morning that you would bless your word. We come with such incredibly diverse experiences. Some of us have been raised in homes that were marriage was chaos, and we need you to cast for us a new vision. Some of us have experienced hurt and loss. And we need for you, Lord, to recapture hope for what human relationships can be. Father, we ask you that you would remove from our hearts the desire to place on any human the unfair weight of making us whole, of making us satisfied, of making us full. We shift that completely to you. 
we repent of our idolatry, we come back to the living well, the living water. I ask you to fill us this morning to abundance so that we have more than enough for our spouse, for our family, for our friends, for our coworkers, and even for our enemies. We ask in Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27. You're a grammar teacher. You're going to be thanking them in just a moment. Grammar will help you love Jesus, all right? Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives as, everyone say as, as, when you see like or as, it is called a? I just heard Mrs. Tomasevich, my high school uh, uh, English teacher somewhere, just groan in the spirit. It is a, like or as is a simile, right? A simile. Oh, yeah, I remember now. Nailed it. Okay. In my heart, I was saying it. I just didn't want to brag. I know. That's what you're really thinking. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor or without spot and wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. There is this idea in this text that marriage, my love for my wife, is a sign is a symbol, is a metaphor, or with the like and as, a simile of Christ's love for his church. Now, we know from histor- uh, for historical reasons that the reason it says that wives should honor their husbands is because, I just returned from Ephesus, I was there in January, that the major religious culture of the time was run by females, and that females were actually having a hard time coming under the authority of the church inside the new Christian community. So this is mutual. Husbands should love their wives. Wives should love their husbands. Husbands should respect their wives. Wives should respect their husbands. This is a mutual thing. In fact, we just flip back a little bit before that Ephesians chapter 5 verses 1 through 2. We actually see this universally applied. Therefore, be imitators of God as, we'll try this again. When you see as, what is that called? Like or as? It's called a, oh, you people are so smart. Nailed it. All right. If that's on Jeopardy tonight and you win a million dollars, tithe. Okay. And walk in love. In fact, go extra. Go above and beyond the tithe. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Both uh, these passages carry the same meaning forward. And it is this idea that somehow human relationships, marriage at its core, and all human relationships are actually meant to be a sign a metaphor, a simile that remind us of and speak to us about God's intense desire for relationship with us. That these things are sacred, that what we're doing right here, right now, from the time that you greeted people and shook people's hand and loved on people, smiled or didn't smile, welcomed or didn't welcome people, something either sacred or not sacred happened between two human beings. And that is fulfilled principally, primarily in marriage. Both phrases utilize that same structure. And I'm in this relationship with my wife, with my spouse, because she has such incredible value to God that God gave me as a gift to her, as part of his redemptive love for her, to remind her that she is loved, to remind her that she is redeemed, to take her when she is at her very lowest and her very worst and remind her of what Jesus himself would do if he were alive on planet earth. That is this purpose and function of marriage. It is missionary. I actually have a call to my wife to expand the gospel, increase the quality of the gospel in her life. If you travel all the way back to Genesis, I love this. Uh, In Genesis, God talks to us about three ways that he speaks to us. God wants to know us, right? And the first thing is God says he spoke and he created the world that we live in. How many of us experience God when we're in nature? That's not an accident. When God spoke, what he created was not words, but worlds. Like we are walking in God's speech to us. Isn't that amazing? Right? He created that as a vehicle for us to know him in. It's amazing. And then he creates that. And then he says, now I'm going to make man and woman imago Dei, image of God. Wow. Wow. It's an honor to be in your presence this morning, your image of God. It's amazing. And we know just sort of anthropologically what that means. If we look at what it means to be human versus the rest of the world, that probably tells us what it means to be like God, right? Because we're image of God. Nobody else is. And we know that you as humans, you have something nobody else has in the entire world. You have 100 billion neural connections. And that has the ability to allow you to think one very important thought that nothing else on planet Earth can think. You know what that thought is? I am. I exist. And to ask questions about what that might mean. Isn't it fascinating, the very first thing that God says about himself is, I I am? 
that we have the ability to ask questions about the world that we live in. So God gives us our intellect and the ability to think about what this life might be about. And he speaks to us there. How many lay on our beds at night and ask questions about God and who he is? God created that space. Then he says, I'm going to create one more space because so far I've shown you that I'm awesome and amazing in all of this created world. I've allowed you to think and ask questions about what your life might be about and why you might exist and who I might be. But I want you to see what I am like in three-dimensional space and time. And so I'm actually going to create the very first relationship with another image of God. Another person whose mission it is to show you what I am like. And your mission will be to show them what I am like. So it's missionary from the very beginning. One God, once God establishes that, he looks at them and says, now that I have one person to look at another person and say, this is what God is like. This is what it's like to experience mercy and grace and kindness. This is what it is like. Now go, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with a bunch of people who are like me so that everywhere you go, you can rejoice in the goodness of God at the likeness of God you experience in the people that are around you. Whoa, cool. Amazing. But at the very center of that lies marriage. If we don't get it right in the marriage, it doesn't go right anywhere else. I always say to myself, JP, it doesn't matter how much all the people who think they know you like you. It only matters how much the one who really knows you likes you. Because they know who I really am. That would be my wife and my kids. They know who the real me is. So, now that we're after the fall, how many know that mission becomes even more important? We look at the world, and where the world before the fall, there was no death, there was no disease, there was no anything. There was only God's goodness everywhere we looked. Now we got little raccoons who are trying to cross the road in the middle of mating season, all amped up on testosterone, and whoosh, they get run down. You know that, that stretch of seaway, you know what I'm talking about, north of the, just north of town? Man, it's a carnage in the, during the spring up there. You walk in, there's like, there's hundreds of carcasses of dead animals up there because they're trying to get from one side of the pond to the other because they're just sure their life life mate is over on the other side over there that's that's more difficult to hear god in creation this world is damaged and difficult it's more difficult to think about god we are confused we don't think as clearly as we would have before the fall and even relationships are more difficult it is now all the more important that we as spouses look at our spouse and say i will be in moments of your doubt i will be clarity for you in moments of your rejection i will be acceptance for you in moments where you feel dark i will be light for you to remind you that jesus is there and he is real and he is substantial so a very good marriage fulfills that purpose. The cool thing about that is, is it's liberating. That means that if someone walks up to me and they say, JP, how is your marriage? I don't have to run down a roster and say, well, let me think about this for a second. Uh, let's see, we had an argument on Tuesday, and uh, you know this didn't go so well, but this is going pretty well. Actually, what I can do is I can look and I can say to myself, if I am through the power of the Spirit, doing my best to make sure that my wife knows more what it's like to be in relationship with Jesus because of the way that I love her, I have a very good marriage. In fact, it actually doesn't matter whether she's reciprocating that to me because the function of marriage is missional. And if my marriage is fulfilling that, if I am owning my missional responsibility to my wife, then my marriage is very good. And you actually have the ability today, regardless of what your spouse does, to stand up and say, if I will just fulfill my missionary purpose, I'm going to love my spouse. Like if Jesus were here, they're going to absolutely be loved like if he were here, all in the flesh. And if that happens, my marriage is very good. Why? Not because it's making us happy, not because it's making us secure, not because it's fulfilling all of our needs, but because it is fulfilling God's missionary purpose. It's very goodness. It's function. The second thing a very good marriage does is it understands the limits of the marriage metaphor. Let me explain what I mean by that. Remember we said, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Walk in love as Christ loved us. So our love for each other in marriage and in this community is a metaphor, a simile for God's love for us. But real good, healthy marriages understand that it is only a metaphor that my spouse can never replace the substance the metaphor is intended to speak of. What do I mean by that? I mean I cannot make my spouse God. I cannot give my spouse the responsibilities of God. My favorite image when it comes to marriage is that of the moon and the sun. What, it, what, what does the moon do? If I'm out lost in the woods at night, 
It reflects the light of the sun, and it reminds me that sooner or later the sun is going to come back into my life. That is the function of the moon. And I am to my spouse the moon. If you want to be silly about it, I always say this when we do marriage conferences. I'm like, my job is to moon my spouse. That is my job. I can never be the sun for her. I cannot do it. Some of you are like, my husband did not need that encouragement. Thank you very much. <laughs> did not need that help. Um, you know, you just do it back. I don't know what to tell you. But um, my, resp- my responsibility is that I look at my wife and I say, I cannot be God for you, but in your darkest moments, in your deepest moments, in your most hopeless moments, I can hope to remind you that God is still there. But I cannot replace, in fact, if you go to the moon, it doesn't matter. If you go at night and you get the moon and the sun confused and you say, I'm going to go bask in the warmth of the moon, I mean, you can't, you'll die. If you say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure that, that my, my little plants get all of this sunlight, but I'm going to take it for the moon, they'll die. It, it just won't work. The moon cannot replace the sun. It is only there to remind us that the sun is coming. That it's there, that it's valuable and substantial and real in those darkest moments. And the problem is, is actually the better your marriage is, the more likely you are to allow this subtle shift to take place where we now bank our happiness, our satisfaction, and our fulfillment on our spouse. Because they have been good to us. We have experienced God's presence through them. But I will tell you this, that if you ask the moon to do what only the sun can do, it will fail every single time. The moon is not the sun, and the spouse, no matter how awesome, is just simply not God. It cannot be. A very good marriage realizes that the spouse's role in reflecting God is exactly that. We've been sold a very different bill of goods by culture, and uh, I'm not anti-culture at all, but I think we need to be uh, very careful about this story that culture tells us. More than we, we, as Christians, we're funny, we get all uh, upset, and I'm not saying we shouldn't about, you know, if someone says a bad word or if someone does something like that, but even more, I think, subtle than that is what story are they telling us? What's the story? And I want to give you a couple examples. Now, I'm not, if you're anti-Disney, great. I'm not anti-Disney. I love Disney. I love romantic movies. I love watching musicals with my wife. I'm a sap. Okay, that's all there is to it. I'm I'm, I'm a beaten man. I've been just destroyed by love. I don't know what to tell you. (laughs) So it's just okay. Um, Hey, we did a marriage last night. I believe that, I believe everybody should attend like 15 weddings every summer and every couple ought to have sympathy honeymoons after everyone. That's the way that I feel about it. So we're just like, you know, that's the bummer when I'm doing the wedding, though. I did it last night. I'm like, I don't get to repeat the vows. I love holding my wife's hand during the wedding and repeating the vows every wedding we go to. It's so awesome. So good. I love it. It's good. <laughs> What's that? If someone could just uh, message my wife and tell her I said that, would be fantastic. All right. I need all the help I can get. So here's the deal, though. I like romantic movies, but I want to give you a couple of examples of the stories that, that we're trying to be told. The first is Aladdin. I don't know. You got the, you got the screen? So, oh, there they are. There they are. So Aladdin. Think about this for a second. Okay. Aladdin, let's talk about the two characters in this, in this story. Aladdin, how many know you've, you've seen Aladdin? You've seen Aladdin, okay. All right, good. One of these days I'm going to say that and nobody's going to have seen Aladdin. I'm just going to be like, so anyway, my next point. Um, okay. <laughs> Aladdin, his best friend, his, think about this, your daughter comes home and she is dating this guy named Aladdin and she starts to describe to you, well, he's really cool, his best friend is a monkey. <laughs> that's, that's not a good start, not a good start, okay? The opening song, here's what he says, and I quote, I only steal what I can't afford, and that's everything. We have a monkey-loving kleptomaniac. His vision and happiness is summed up in his speech to his monkey friend, Abu. (laughs) Sorry, I love that. Someday, Abu, we will be rich, live in a palace, and then we will never have any problems at all. That is his vision for the future. It's important. He falls in love with Princess Jasmine for one reason. He thinks she's hot. Then he lies through his teeth to win her affection. Aladdin is a vapid, shallow, money-grubbing, lying thief who's afraid of responsibility and commitment. He has a monkey for a best friend, and he thinks nothing short of servants, a palace, and unlimited wealth will ever make him truly happy. This is not marrying material. Now, Jasmine, she has never left her childhood home, not once. You think homeschoolers, and we homeschool, are sheltered? No, no, no. She has never left her home. She has zero skills, and I quote, I've never done anything on my own, and I've never had a real friend. She is not ready for marriage. In the song, A Whole New World, she gives us her vision of happiness. A hundred thousand things to see. I'll chase them anywhere. Can you say high maintenance? Do you want to go grab dinner at the Taj Mahal? I mean, she is high maintenance. Both of them together agree that their biggest complaint, which they utter at the same time beautifully in unison, is that they feel trapped 
by people who want things from them. And in the song, A Whole New World, we get a vision of what their future, they believe, will look like. It's a whole new world. You know the, you know the words. A new fantastic point of view. This is, I laugh out loud every time. No one to tell us no. Yeah, because in marriage, no one ever tells you no. I give these people till the first time they disagree about the toppings on their pizza for divorce. They are not going to make it. Because their, their vision is that two fundamentally broken people can come together and somehow, as if by magic, when we put them together under marriage, they're going to be awesome. And it, friends, is a lie. Well, what about Cinderella? Let's look at Cinderella for a second. I love this. I love Cinderella. The prince, his father has several paintings of his son in his office, capped off with a 16 by 16 foot, I tried to measure it and do the proportions on the screen, that's approximately 16 by 16 foot, painting of him in his bedroom. Yeah, I'm sure daddy's not going to be involved in your relationship at all. His face literally does not move the entire movie. He has the waxen features of a sociopath. He sees Cinderella seemingly without even asking or acknowledging that she is a human, just begins to dance with her. He is a classic narcissist. That kind of stuff is only cool in movies. In real life, that is creepy. Okay? He ultimately chooses his wife, not because he knows her, not because he loves her, but because she's hot and can rock his favorite pair of shoes. Now, that is something to build a lifetime of faithfulness, commitment, and happiness on. Basically, his philosophy is, hey, you're pretty. Can you wear these shoes? Will you marry me? Oh, yeah, what's your name? <laughs> Cinderella, in her bedroom, lives with no less than 20 animals. She's like the crazy cat lady, only with birds and rodents. She makes them little clothes, and then she talks to them, and they talk back, which is good. The very first words she speaks after meeting the prince are in the form of a song, and she says, so this is love. And they sing in unison, having never spoken, and now I know what heaven is like. After they sing, so this is love, remembering they do not yet know each other's name, they have not spoken a single word to each other they kiss. It's been four minutes and 23 seconds since their first meeting. They instantly know that the other person they will be marrying will make life a heaven for them. It will make them okay. Friends, that is not real. That is pretend. And yet, we laugh, but when we say to ourselves, I would only be happy, I would be happy if only my spouse would, do we not betray that we have believed this story? Well, I would be happy if my spouse would just, I would feel better about myself if my spouse would just, I would finally be able to do something for God if my spouse would just, one too many Disney movies to the head, we got to get rid of it. Our spouse's job is to reflect the sun. And let me tell you something. If the moon goes away, the sun still exists. And if your moon is not shining right now, it is okay. I promise you that the sun is still there. And it is life-giving and nurturing and can bring you health and everything you need. I promise you. So a very good marriage remembers the limits of the metaphor. I can moon you, baby, but I just can't be your son. That leads us to the third quality of a very good marriage. Very good marriage flows out of, and this is what Pastor Ben and I talked about extensively, flows out of this idea of personal abundance. I think this is actually Paul's most important message in the book of Ephesians, this message of personal abundance, of being personally full and satisfied and healthy in Christ. It would be fascinating if we could just be real for a second here. I think it would be fascinating if we could go around the room and we could have a meter up on the, on the screen, just for ourselves, not necessarily for everybody else, but just for ourselves, and it, and it really showed how genuinely satisfied we are with Christ. Like how whole we feel, how hopeful we feel, how cared for we, we feel, how secure we feel because of our relationship with Christ. Wouldn't that be fascinating? In the middle of the book of John, um, the linchpin of the Gospel of John is the section in chapter 15 where Jesus looks at the disciples. But remember, this isn't written, remember, the Gospel of John's not written for the disciples, it's written for the first century church so that they can know how they can live. And Jesus looks and remember, he says, I will not leave you orphans. Isn't that beautiful? I will not leave you orphans. And yet, 
feels sometimes like we live in orphan faith a little bit. A faith that is not secure and attached. And Paul's personal message here in Ephesians is that everything good that we need in the kingdom flows first and foremost out of my personal revelation, my personal abundance in Christ. That that is first and foremost an individual responsibility. If you think about it, Ephesians, we have several kind of narratives of it. Love is important in the narratives of Ephesians. So if you look at the book of Acts, that's the first time we run into the church at Ephesus. And Paul goes there and he preaches. And you might remember it if you've read the passage because everybody there was worshiping, uh, worshiping the, uh, at the cult of, uh, of Artemis. And everyone gets saved. And what do they do? They bring like millions of dollars. You know, you hear preachers preach on it. They all calculate it differently. A lot of money worth of artifacts and books that they use for their worship and they burn them in the town square. Now today we would tell them to sell them on eBay and give the money to missions. But then they just burn them in the town square. And uh, they, so you know it's revival when people are burning millions of dollars worth of books, right? I mean, something very, very good is happening there. That's great. And they are, they are alive. They're on fire for God. Now, what's fascinating is we fast forward to the book of, of Ephesians, which is maybe something like, you know, six years later, something like that. And all of a sudden we realize proportionately, now you all are smart people. If Pastor Ben got up here and he said, next year we're going to call the year of unity. I'm going to be preaching on unity all year. How many are smart enough to figure out what that means? We do not have unity right now. That's what that means. That's what that means, okay? That's what good leaders do. They assess what the problem is and how do, we, how do we help fix it and grow. If we're reading Paul, statistically, he uses the word love more in the book of Ephesians than any other book of the New Testament that he wrote, including the love chapter of Corinthians. And that love in over 80% of the instances isn't my love for God, it is our love for each other. In the marriage level, family level, and at the relationship in the, in the community of faith. If he's writing that much, we know we got a problem, right? And there's a pretty simple reason for that. Ephesians, Ephesus, the city of Ephesus, is uh, one of the busiest towns in the ancient world. All of the goods from, the, from northern Africa and from India and from Asia, they would all travel through there to get to the west. This was the place that if you were a young person wanting to make your way in life or you had been a freed as having been a slave, you want to make your way in life, you get to Ephesus, you work hard, you can, make a, you can make a living for yourself. You can make a name for yourself. The problem is it was the original capitalism. If you're willing to work 16 hours a guy, there's a guy down the street who's just a little bit hungrier than you are who's willing to work 17. And the next thing you know, you have this culture where everybody is just wearing themselves out trying to make a living. How many know love and busyness don't grow well together? Right? You only get so many seeds for that soil. And when you start, the more activities you plant, you've got to start pulling love and relationship out. That takes time. And so we see apparently that in this culture that once had had this great revival, now all of a sudden they're having a little bit of a problem. Paul says, you guys love God. I mean, you do love God. You do love each other, but the edge has come off, right? That edge that you had when you first loved Jesus Christ. Now we fast forward a few more years to the book of Revelation. There's a letter to the church at Ephesus. And what does he say? You have lost your first love. Oh, there's a pattern here, isn't there? And by the way, the first and second epistle to Timothy are also written while Timothy was the pastor at Ephesus. So we know a lot about this church from the New Testament. So we know that love is an issue for them. And what Paul is fundamentally addressing in the book of Ephesians is not how do I get you to be nicer to each other, not how do I get you to love your wives better. Those come in the second half of the book. He knows that if he's going to fix the problems, he can't go putting band-aids on things. He has to actually get them back to the place where they are experiencing, again, a personal revelation of the person, the love, the redemption of Jesus Christ in their own lives. They have to experience it for themselves. Let me give you an example. I love this. In Ephesians chapter 1, um, he opens up, and how many know, if you are kind of running just slightly lukewarm in your relationship with Jesus Christ, there's no one more annoying than someone who is not? You figure that out? And I love this because the longest, like, individual praise session that Paul ever has in the New Testament is in Ephesians chapter 1. So he writes to them, and he's like, hey, how are you guys doing? I just want to tell you, God is so good. And he just starts going, why is he doing that? He's like, twist the dagger. He's like, you guys know you don't feel what I am saying to you. Now listen to this. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, he says he's predestined us for adoption. Goes on this wonderful thing, and he says, because he has blessed us in the beloved. We are beloved by God. Ephesians chapter 2, 4 and 5a, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. In Ephesians chapter 3, here's where he gets to the capstone. This is Paul's prayer, and he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. And what is he praying for? That you, being rooted and grounded in love, love what? The love of Christ that I've just described, 
may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know, know, I love that, know, not know, know, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And this is fascinating. He says, if you know the love of Christ, and here he uses a lovely little grammar where basically this phrase means the same thing as the first phrase, that you will know the love of Christ, and knowing the love of Christ, you will be filled with all the fullness of God. You'll have more than enough. More than enough. Only after that prayer does he shift into, now what do we do about that? Ephesians chapter 4, he says, bear with one another in love. What? In what love? The love that you experienced in Ephesians chapter 1 through 3. Ephesians 4, 15 and 16, call Paul's, Paul calls them to speak the truth. What? In love. What love? The love that they experienced from Christ in chapters 1 through 3. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, we read it. Paul calls them to walk in love as Christ loved us. That love from chapter 1 through 3. And Ephesians 5, 25, where we started, Paul calls the husband and wife to love each other as Christ loved the church. That we are so full of Christ's love that we have more than enough to share with those who are around us. If we allow busyness, little idolatries, the myth that someone or something can ultimately make us happy, satisfied, secure, safe, whole, and allow those things because we have believed that they will take care of us to steal away our time with Jesus where we receive a personal revelation of his love to us, we will have an impact on how we love others. It will, it will reverse the flow. The flow is supposed to be God to me more than enough overflow to you. And all of a sudden we're going, oh my goodness, I'm dry, I'm thirsty, there's not enough for me. Can I have some of yours? Well, you know what happens if two people who don't have more than enough meet each other? They claw and they scratch at each other and then they shake their fist at each other and say, why don't you love me? Why aren't you meeting my needs? And you may as well shake your fist at the moon and curse it for not growing your crops. It was never meant to do that for you. And it was never meant to do that for me. I want to challenge you with two verses from John. As I said, John writes to the later first century church. And by then, most of the people don't know anyone who actually physically saw Jesus anymore. You think about that. First generation of people who actually don't know anyone that, that saw Jesus. Miracles we know historically are decreasing. And people are starting to feel like, man, this is not exactly how I thought this whole kingdom thing was going to go down. They're having questions about God. And in John chapter 10, verse 10, and you can come on up, Samantha. I love this. Written to people like you and me who are living at a distance from Jesus. You know it. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. We focus there. Jesus says, but I came that you might have life. And that life should be, if I can use maybe fresh language, more than enough. More than enough life. More than enough. And in John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39, one of my favorite passages. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit. You hear the, the, the continuity of thought? If we are full of the Spirit, full of Christ, we will have more than enough. I won't go home to my wife and I'll be like, can you make me okay? Can you affirm me enough? Sweetheart, how was my sermon? Can you make me feel like I pleased God? How am I doing at my job? Can you make me feel, sweetheart, like I'm okay and I'm successful? Why aren't you making me feel like I'm okay? Can you make me feel like I'm beautiful, husband? Can you do that for me? Can you make me feel like I'm loved and secure and okay? And I will just tell you that the answer is no. Give up trying to live on the moon. Go straight to the sun. Straight to the sun. I want you to imagine someone corners you after church this morning 
and they say, give me a million dollars or I'm going to break every bone in your body. And by the way, if your response to that would be to give them a million dollars, let me know and I will meet you in the narthex after the service. <laughs> and what you reply is, I don't have it. I can't. It's impossible. I can't give you what I do not have. I mentioned at the beginning that there's something wrong in the architecture of our marriages. Something structurally wrong that's making them not very good. And it's not adultery and it's not pornography and it's not boredom, it's not lack of satisfaction, it's not lack of love. It's a lack of our own personal abundance in Jesus Christ. If you're a young person here, please, 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 please listen to me. Who you will marry is the second most important question of your life. What you believe, what you believe the role of that spouse is in your marriage is the first most important question in terms of your marriage. That's the primary question. Don't get those things confused. Get alone with Jesus until you're so full of Jesus, so full of his abundant love for you, imperfect you, that you just have to find someone to share that with for the rest of your life. You've got more than enough, and you're looking for a needy neighbor. And by the way, that's what all men are, <laughs> needy neighbors. You say, women are beachfront property, men are fixer-uppers. That's, <laughs> that's all there is to it. Now you know why I have a good marriage. Because <laughs> I believe everything my wife says. That's why. But a very good marriage is defined by whether it fulfills its missionary purpose, not by whether my wife makes me happy today by whether I go home and before I walk through that door, I say, God, fill me so full of you that I got more than enough. It splashes over onto my kids, splashes over onto my wife. You know, this is very personal, but I'll, I'll share this with you. About three weeks ago, you ever just have one of those, anyone else besides me ever go through a funk? I am one of the most optimistic people you'll ever meet. So when I go through a funk, my wife's like, oh my goodness, something bad has happened. But about three weeks ago, just out of the blue, it was like my kids would say something, and I just took it as like a shot to the heart. You know, if my kids would say like, um, you know, can't we have whatever for dinner tonight? I'm like, I bought you a pool and a dog, and a, you're saying I'm not a good provider, and I don't love you, and I'm a horrible dad, and I hate myself. I mean, I just, I mean, can we just be, no, am I the only one? Am I talking to myself? Okay, anyway, so this is sort of cathartic for me. Um, and then it was like, I was like the same way with my wife. Like she would just be like, I'm just tired. And I'd be like, I'm sorry I work you so hard. And I don't care. I just was really having a great A pity party. I really was. And like, I, I'm, I'm just being honest. And my wife couldn't make it okay. She couldn't. I mean, I was just in a funk. And this is like, just not like me at all. And my wife just kept saying, sweetheart, I don't know what's going on. I can't help you but I'll do the best I can to remind you of who can. And she just loved me, and she served me and showed me the gospel. And that, that, that's what it's about. That's what it's about. And her time's coming. <laughs> She's going to be miserable. <laughs> I don't know when it's going to be. It'll probably be my fault. But <laughs> and I'm going to say, Jesus, just fill me with more than enough. And I, I might not be able to be the son for her, but I'm going to do my best to remind her the one who can. And you know, this is so critical. I hear that Pastor Ben, Pastor Pete's heart for this community. I will tell you, this is my personal experience. I've had more opportunities to share the gospel with people because of my marriage than I have because of my position. Isn't that fascinating? Anybody ever eat at the Village Baker, Spring Lake? It's a great place. At one time, I don't know if they do anymore, but at one time I'm pretty sure you had to smoke dope to get hired. There was a bunch of hippies that worked there. It was great. And so my wife and I were like, you know, we work at a church, so we can only lead pastoral staff to Jesus so many times, you know what I'm saying? There's like, anybody, anybody, just like recommitment, you want to be really sure, you know? You can only do it so many times. So we're like, we have to eat places and build relationships with people who don't know the Lord. And we're like, these people look stoned, so we're going to eat here. <laughs> and uh, so we would go there like every week. And I have to admit, like, I'm kind of inappropriate in public. Sometimes I touch my wife's butt in public, and she's, sorry. And uh, hind end, hindquarters. I'm inappropriate in public sometimes. And, um, and we walk in, and I just, I just, I just love my wife. I, I just wake up every morning, and I'm honestly gobsmacked that God would entrust one of his precious people with me. Like, I, I just am. I'm, I'm gobsmacked. My wife's amazing. And uh, so we'd walk in, and we have date night every Friday night at 5 o'clock, and my wife is adorable. If you saw her, you would just be like, holy cow, is she blind? Um, <laughs> she married me, but she's amazing. And every night we have, every Friday night we have date night. We have since we were first married. And we would go to this place, and we would just eat, and we'd laugh, and 
we talk. And uh, there's one young lady that served us all the time. And one night, I, I very rarely take meetings on Friday nights because that's, that's sacred space. I always tell people, I have an appointment, and I do it. It's with my wife. And, uh, but this, this one thing I do every year. And um, so she said, well, I'm going on a date by myself because the kids are driving me nuts. I said, okay, that's fine. And she went by herself. She went to our place, and she went to Village Baker. And um, she's sitting there. And I love this. It's such a, so, so powerful. The young lady who always waited on us without even being asked just slides into the booth across from her and just starts sobbing at the table. And she says, I've got to know what makes it work. And she said, I see you come in. I see your husband inappropriately grab you in the middle of the restaurant. And I'm not proud of it, but I'm not changing either. <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, I know people are like, you were in the Bible college? Yeah, I don't know. I don't get it either. I don't get it either. But anyway. Um, this is what makes it work. And here's the thing. You know what she expected. She expected, well, my husband is amazing. Or, you know, I just, I've learned to serve my husband. My wife looked at her and you said, you know what makes it work? The gospel. Because my job in my relationship is to show my husband what grace looks like. And when he needs it most, that's not my time to run away. That's my time to run to. I don't run away when he fails. I run to him. And when I fail, when I struggle, he doesn't run away. That's his moment to shine. That's why he's here, to show me the gospel. Tears streaming down her face. She's like, we need Jesus in our marriage. See, this is important stuff. If we as a church can get this right, we can get anything right. You know what marriage is? It's two sinners locked in a cage match until death do you part. If you can learn to live amicably until you hit the ground and love each other and serve each other, we can do anything. And I mean that jokingly and seriously. But I believe we can. Would you stand with me this morning? Father, you're so good. Would you just, if you're comfortable, would you just, just stretch up your hands? Holy Spirit, fill us this morning. Fill us this morning. You have not left us orphans. Holy Spirit, you are here. Jesus, you are not back there and coming in the future. You are here by the presence of your Holy Spirit. You give us those challenging words, Jesus, that it is actually better that you leave. The Holy Spirit is so real, so rich, so tangible in our lives. Holy Spirit, would you just fill us? Would you make us whole? Would you shine your sun on us? Would you fill us to overflowing? Would you be true to your promises? We're not asking you to do anything you haven't said you would do for poor, miserable people like us. Make us abundant. Give us more than enough. Our need to be approved, God, tell us that in Christ we have everything that we need. Our need, Lord, to feel like we have significance, give us more than we need in you. Our need to feel that we're forgiven and released from our past more than enough in you. If we've been minimized by other people in our lives and we're attempting to prove that we have values so that we can prove them wrong, God, we have more than enough in you. Make us whole. Make us whole, Jesus. Some of us today, we need to do something very important, and that is we need to fire our spouse from the job of being God. Some of us, we, we literally need to, after this service, again, say, you know what? You're fired. It's not your fault. I hired you for the wrong position. I looked at the job description. I thought you fit the bill, but you don't. It's not your fault. We'll find another place in the company for you. It's not your fault, but you're fired. And let Jesus have his way. Let Jesus have his way. Uh, Samantha's going to lead us. And I just ask you to join with me. Say, Lord, I need you. I need you. Every hour I need you. And Jesus, would you just reopen your supply to us? Maybe some of us really feel that. We feel that there has been a little idolatry that's creeped in. We've let something else, the, the myth, the story that something else was going to make us okay, creep in. But Jesus, we repent today. We know it's only you. It's only you. Only you can do it. Our longings are too great. Our need too deep.
for any human to meet that need. Only you, Jesus. Only you, Lord. Would you go ahead and lead us through anything? Hallelujah. Hallelujah, Lord. God, we stand before you here today and we repent of thinking that anything else besides you could meet our need. Lord, we repent of trying to put other things and other people in your place today, God. Lord, as we look at marriage in the sense of how you created it to be and how you said it was good, God, Lord, we pray that you, Christ, are at the center of our marriages within the church. God, for those of people in here who have not yet found their spouse or who are living single, God, we repent and place you at the center of our lives as the only thing that can fulfill us, that can make us feel whole, that it is not another person, single or married. Another person is never the answer for us. Lord, that it is only the Savior, Christ Jesus, that can make us feel fulfilled, that could give us peace, that could give us hope, that could fill us up so that we can reflect the goodness of God to others. Lord Jesus Christ, we stand before you. God, we stand before you and we ask us to be the moon. Lord, that we could be the moon for our community, God, that we could reflect Christ, God, out of the abundance, out of the overflow of our relationship and the hope and the love that we have that comes from you. God, we thank you for bringing this word to light in us today, God. Let us all reflect on this word, your truth, God, and help us to live it and put it into action, God. Go beyond hearing and into our hearts, into living. Help us to live it out, God, in a real, in a real way. We know we can't do it on our own strength, that we need you. And that's why we sing that song, Lord, I need you, because... Right now, we need you more than we ever did before. Lord, we're responsible for that truth that we heard this morning, God. And we long to, to live it out, but God, we need your empowerment. We need your spirit. We need your love. And so we draw close to you and not away in this moment. I want to just pray that, God, that you would bless these men and these women, these students, these adults, these uh, people, God. And I pray that your hand of blessing would be upon them, God. I pray that you would speak to them and draw them close. I pray that you would pour your spirit into them, God. I pray that you would be moving on their behalf. I pray that as they go about their business this week, God, as they do the things that you have called them to do, God, that they would acknowledge your presence in, your li in their life. And like the song said, that they would acknowledge the fact that they need you to be be a part of it, to fulfill it, to live it out. God, I pray that you would draw them close, speak to them, and be with them, love on them everywhere they go, and bless them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. Well, church, I'm so glad that you came here today. We love you guys. Uh, take a moment to connect with each other. Don't just bolt. Have a great weekend. Enjoy uh, this beautiful day, and we'll see you right back here next week for another great service. God bless you.